Welcome back to What in the World. My name is Ryan Rosenthal. My name is Andre Gonoela. And it's another week, Andre. Another week. Lots of happenings around the world. Uh, let's start off with what's happening at home. Uh, impeachment's over. Finally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any hot takes, Andre? I mean, shocking to know, but it was the most bipartisan impeachment vote to convict ever in the country, which is, I mean, sort of, I mean, he was going to be acquitted anyway. I mean, you think you were going to get like 17 Republican senators to vote to convict? I laugh at you if you believe that's true. Uh, But yeah, I mean, the president, former President Trump was... uh, not convicted, but I think it was a 57 to 43 vote uh, to convict. You need 67, so there were short 10 Republican senators. Uh, most of the senators who voted, aside from Lisa Murkowski, are not at risk of being voted out anytime soon. They have at least four years left in the tank or they're retiring. Uh, but yeah, I mean, do you think this is going to have any effect on? The prosecution of domestic terrorism? Uh, likely not. I mean, right. I mean, this is a very discreet, uh, quote unquote, prosecution, right? This, this Senate trial uh, over the, the president's actions uh, will, I, at least in my opinion, have no impact on the, the federal charges brought by the U.S. government in, in, the, in the prosecution of domestic terrorism in the United States, particularly in relation to uh, the January 6 events. But if we're looking more broadly, I think the the Biden administration has signaled, and we've talked about this before, uh, that there's going to be a renewed effort to crack down on domestic terrorism at, at all levels of government, from local to federal, uh, and we'll likely see uh, the Justice Department take the lead with that, as well as the Homeland Security. And so I, I'm not really kind of, you know, dismayed by by the impeachment when it relates particularly to the prosecution of domestic terror. Of course, you know, I have my own opinions on on what the result should have been with uh, the former president. Uh, but putting that aside, uh, I think that we're still going to see a, a renewed effort and much more harsh pursuit of domestic terrorists, particularly when we're looking at the far right, uh, just because of there's still right uh, this concern in D.C. We still have the National Guard president in D.C. because of a fear that there will be far right elements seeking to engage in some sort of action against the the Biden administration, against the U.S. government. Uh, And so, right, I mean, everyone's a bit on edge, right, in the U.S. government, particularly from this threat. Uh, But when we're looking at impeachment more broadly, I think the country is more or less moving on. Uh, You know, we haven't really heard much about uh, former President Trump in the news, which uh, is quite different than what we've experienced for the past four years. I think he resigned from the Screen Actors Guild and he called Mitch McConnell something, but that's the most I've heard. Uh, Ryan, look out your window. Are there National Guard troops right now outside? Not outside, uh, but they are present in D.C. They're still here, but not, you know, it wasn't like it was uh, during uh, inauguration. So things are a bit more calm in in D.C., uh, but there still is a presence. On that note, I mean, when you talk about a Biden administration taking steps to further crack down on domestic terrorism, uh, CNN was just reporting, actually, that uh, they're going to use FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Oftentimes, when we think of FEMA, we always think of it in the aftermath of some uh, massive hurricane, right? But no, FEMA is basically going to be contributing significant funding to, I think, local governments to help them sort of crack down on these domestic terror groups. 
uh, both to both to local governments and state governments, actually. So uh, that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, it's certainly. I mean, the, the good part about uh, DHS is this uh, effort to engage more and more with local and state um, governments, right? Just because DHS is responsible for the security of the homeland, right? The Department of Homeland Security. And FEMA is a subsidiary organization within that. And so it's it's nice to see that they're looking to kind of take funding in this direction, right? Just because DHS has a lot of funding and they've been kind of looking at ways in which to kind of reapportion it. And we've talked about that on the podcast previously, um, in particular with Tom Warwick, who was a former DHS official. We went and did a deep dive on the ways in which the DHS could be kind of reinvigorated and rejuvenated just because in, in certain areas, there are some negative viewpoints, particularly when you look at TSA. No one really likes, you know, going through TSA, but it's a it's a necessity. And and so when we look at FEMA and all the other uh, agencies within DHS, uh, it's nice to see, as, as we've been talking about, this effort to combat domestic terrorism from all, all areas of government. And so this is a, a positive step. Uh, it's one in the right direction. And so it'll be interesting, interesting to see the ways in which the Biden administration tries to engage with state and local governments. Precisely. It'll be, it'll be very interesting to see indeed. Moving on now, uh, just a brief update on you know what happened between India and China. As we mentioned last week, uh, India and China both agreed to simultaneously draw back the troops that were at the Ladakh border region. As we remember, back in the summer of 2020, we had the first violent we had the first incident of, of violence that actually killed. Uh, troops on both sides. I think about 20 Indian troops were killed, 40 Chinese troops were killed. Uh, Very scary times because you don't want two nuclear-clad superpowers going at it with each other. But uh, since then, there was no violence, but it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Uh, They've both actually dismantled the camps that were on that border. Uh... And yeah, so like, you know, things appear to be finally like officially cooling down. Of course, uh, we'll see what, you know, the future holds. But yeah, like it's not going to be, I don't think it's going to, you know, get any worse. It's going to be getting better. Yeah. So, well, I mean, as we talked about last week, it's, it's quite important to see that two uh, countries with fairly large militaries, nuclear um, capable countries kind of standing down and, and no longer engaging in hostilities is is a quite a good sign, right? You don't like to see that anywhere in the world, particularly in that uh, region, just because it, it's been a hot spot uh, in recent years. And so uh, it's it's nice to see. I, I'm curious to see the, the different areas in which uh, these two countries will engage externally, just because when you have one crisis kind of, you know, calming down, another one almost always emerges somewhere else. And so uh, it'll be interesting to watch and see where uh, conflict will reemerge. But as we talked about, India has its own domestic instability. And so I'm sure that uh, the Indian government is quite satisfied with the results on the border, just so that they can kind of take more resources and take more of their time to dealing with their internal struggles. And I mean, similarly with China, right? I mean, they they are facing a United States that is kind of not backing down, is certainly you know full steam ahead on some sort of competition. Uh, we've, as we've been talking about, right? I mean, the Biden administration is bringing more and more China experts on. There's a full pivot to Asia, and so it'll be uh, important to see how China responds externally, but also internally, right? We, we've always talked about the many different domestic 
challenges that China faces from the Xinjiang province to Hong Kong to the Taiwan issue, Tibet, right? There's all of these issues that are also, you know, furthered by external forces such as the United States and other players in the region. And so, uh, right, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we if we see China re-engaging in different areas, um, probably adverse to the interests of the United States following this, uh, I guess, calming of, 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 of issues between India and China. Yeah, precisely. It'll be very interesting to see indeed. And indeed, you've probably seen Modi's beard. It's grown quite a bit. Uh, indicates a man who is not having a good time right now no. with both the foreign policy and the domestic policy. Yeah. No, I mean, they're, they're facing a lot of challenges there. And we, we've talked about that. And hopefully we'll do a, a deep dive on India shortly. But let's, uh, let's turn to Myanmar, uh, just because protests have not subsided. They've actually increased uh, over the past week. And so a new charge was filed against Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, who was the leader of, of Myanmar before she was detained. Uh, and then deposed by the uh, military junta that is ruling the country. And so we've had the, the, the Burmese society come out in full force, rejecting the army's control of the country, uh, which has truly been miraculous. If you look on social media, you'll see just the sheer number of people out in support of, the, uh, of a democratic Myanmar. Um, it's, it's, it, and we also saw, right, um, that the United States imposed sanctions, other uh, de- democratic countries are looking to do so as well. And so at, at least for now, right, we're seeing this economic targeting, this economic effort to kind of hurt the, the military that is now ruling Myanmar. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see the, how effective that is, right? As we talked about last week, it might not be very effective. It's certainly a nice symbol, right? It demonstrates the US and the, the efforts by democratic com- countries to say, hey, we're not okay with this. Uh, but I mean, in all reality, right, sanctions only have a limited effect, particularly when you have uh, other economically strong countries supporting Myanmar. And so uh, it's, it's looking like Myanmar will be kind of drifting into, into China's arms, uh, which, is not, which is an issue, right? It's something that we, we don't want to see, uh, but it's almost inevitable given the sort of action that's been taken by the United States and other similar countries. And so uh, without, I guess, a more uh, strong you know, sort of package or, or effort by whether it's, you know, the internal um, actors or external actors, uh, I, I think the military will have a quite a, a strong grip on the country for the time being. Yeah. And sort of, I want to now pivot to the Middle East, actually, because uh, Joe Biden was having some calls with some prominent Middle Eastern leaders. He finally called uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, who has been prime minister for the past 12 years, I think. Uh, He also, before we talk about Israel, though, he also called, I think, or he was going to call uh, King Salman of Saudi Arabia, not the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, also known as MBS. Uh, Joe Biden's press secretary, uh, Jen Psaki, said, uh, yeah, basically, the king is President Biden's counterpart, not not MBS, uh, which is certainly a different approach than has been taken before, because many people have always seen MBS right now as the de facto leader. But uh, many analysts have said that this is probably like the Biden administration trying to, you know, uh, tone it down with Saudi Arabia and also 
send sort of uh, some signals through them. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen Biden demonstrate that he's not going to tolerate Saudi Arabia's human rights abuses, their proxy conflicts with Iran, most notably in Yemen, right? We've seen the, the Biden administration say, f- you know, with full force that they're not supporting the war in Yemen. And so uh, King Salman, who does, you know, by law rule the country, right? Whether or not it's de facto, right? That's up, up for argument. It certainly seems like MBS really does rule the country, which is, you know, in all said and done, right? They need to deal with MBS. It's uh, it's basically a slight to MBS, which I'm not sure uh, how useful that is in doing so when you have to deal with him anyways. Uh, so I, I imagine there's some back channeling, whether between, I mean, m- most likely Jake Sullivan has probably had a conversation with him. Uh, but it, it's, it is a strong signal to say, hey, Saudi Arabia, we're not going to put up with what you, the relationship you had under the Trump administration. You need to change your course. Uh, our policy positions have changed. Uh, and that's uh, not good news for the Saudis. It's, 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 I mean, it's, it's kind of good news for Iran. And um, we can talk about the Iran nuclear deal and that, you know, whether or not that's actually going to come into force. But when we look at Saudi Arabia, uh, it is, it's, we have a new sheriff in town uh, who's not going to put up with the abuses and the kind of the um, unruly so, uh, foreign policy that Saudi Arabia has had. And so uh, I, I'm not sure how Saudi Arabia is going to react to it. I can't imagine it's going to be very positively, but at the end of the day, they need the United States, right? I mean, we are a huge arms supplier. We are a deterrent in the region. And so they, they need to be friendly with us um, for a variety of reasons. And so uh, I think it is it is up to the Biden administration to define the relationship and whether or not Saudi Arabia complies with that, the definitions that are put into place is is yet to be seen. Yeah. And I mean, as someone was saying, actually, I saw it on Twitter, but I don't recall who exactly, but they were saying the pivot to Asia is real. I mean, we are seeing less of a focus on the Middle East, which is why these calls, I, I don't think he still has called actually King Salman. He just called Netanyahu like last night, I think. We're taping on Thursday. But uh, I think there's going to be, I mean, obviously the Middle East is still going to be a central part of U.S. policy. But really, I mean, you're seeing the the focus shift to Asia. You're seeing the focus shift to Asia, Asia, East Asia, South Asia. Uh, That's where the game is being played now. And I say game in a proverbial sense, but yeah. And like, I mean, also... And like also, you know, MBS, I mean, the Trump administration was favorable to MBS. Uh, certainly MBS was able to get away with many things just because of, the, of that diplomatic relationship. Uh, and also, obviously, you know, Netanyahu. Netanyahu did not have a, a great relationship with President Obama, who Joe Biden was vice president to. He had a great relationship with Donald Trump. Uh, this will sort of bring Netanyahu back down to earth especially given his own domestic situations and troubles and all of that. Oh yeah, and it's it's only going to further his domestic trouble domestic troubles, right? I mean because a huge win for Netanyahu has been the Trump administration's support, which has then kind of allowed him domestically to advance certain more, you know, right-leaning uh, areas of policy, particularly when you're looking at settlements, when you're looking at kind of cracking down um on on the terrorist um elements within the region and so uh, well, it'll be it'll be a quite different uh, Israel-U.S. relationship, particularly when you're looking at uh, the threat of Iran. I, you know, I said the JCPOA, but when you're looking at Iran, right? Uh, Israel and the United States allegedly uh, together took out 
uh, the top nuclear scientist. Um, and, you know, we also, you know, the United States took out Qasem Soleimani, uh, the former commander of the IRGC's Quds Force. And so we're not likely to see that under the, the Biden administration, right? I mean, they're looking to have a more softer approach to Iran in order to reach some sort of deal, right? I mean, the Biden administration doesn't want to prove all of those naysayers who thought the deal was a failure and couldn't be worked out. And so we're going to see all efforts looking towards uh, coming to some sort of deal so that uh, the Biden administration can have a win and that uh, Joe Biden, who helped craft uh, the JCPOA as VP, can then say, hey, look what we've done. We did it right this time. It's going to stick and we won't have a nuclear uh, capable Iran in the future. Yeah. And I mean, the State Department, I think spokesman or someone who's one of the foreign policy spokesmen for the US just said, hey, if the European Union invites us to the table with Iran, we will invite, we will accept that invitation. Uh, no word on, you know, what Iran is necessarily saying about that. But yeah. Yeah, we'll see. I think Merkel, who is on her way out, will, will, will would like to see a, a JCPOA win as well. And so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the EU gets on board. Uh, it'll be probably, I mean, it's also, you don't need the EU, right? You have the P5 plus one, uh, which is the five permanent members of the UN uh, Security Council plus Germany. Uh, and so it, it's it's seeming like it, a deal can very well happen. It's just not going to be under the same terms because Iran kind of has a bit of the upper hand, right? They're already uh, um, enriching uranium uh, past the levels that were kind of at the, the threshold requirement. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see how the United States and its partners negotiate uh, any sort of agreement uh, in this kind of new set of circumstances. Yeah. Margaret Brennan from CBS News had a great tweet on this saying, US strongly signaling that it would like Iran to ask it out via their mutual friend and would say yes if asked on a date, public courting <laughs> to begin diplomacy over Iran deal. Margaret yeah, Brennan from CBS. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that sort of sums it up pretty succinctly. <laughs> yeah, foreign policy is like a relationship. It's all it, it is like dating, I guess. If you're it's, gonna, it's like you dating, know. but there's some cheating involved. It's sort of polygamist, and there's <laughs> and like the 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 uh, the breakups can be quite explosive. Oh, <laughs> legitimately, without a doubt. Um, all right. Um, you know, let's go to our weekly Russia update. Um, uh, just because there's always something happening in Russia. And this week, similarly, uh, the EU is set to impose sanctions on on Russia over the Navalny fiasco by March. Uh, this is what diplomats have said. Uh, it seems like this was, you know, going to happen regardless. There's been kind of some politicking within the EU about whether or not this was going to happen. Uh, there's been larger conversations about uh, sanctions against Russia, given their actions, but uh, given. Uh, the poisoning of Navalny, the jailing of Navalny, and the clampdown uh, on on um, the civil society in Russia, uh, sanctions seem like the most logical next step. Uh, and so the United States will, if the EU does this, the US will likely follow suit, uh, which could severely uh, hurt US-Russia relations, EU-Russia relations, which are already at a low point. Uh, and so uh, Sergei Lavrov, uh, the foreign minister of Russia, said that if the EU were to impose further sanctions, that they'd cut ties completely. Uh, and that's dangerous, right? We live in in quite a, a dangerous world right now, just, just by the state of it. And so by making it even more dangerous by cutting off uh, relations uh, is certainly concerning when you have nuclear weapons, asymmetric warfare, all of these things we talk about. And so 
Um, it's definitely something to watch, but it, it seems like it's going to happen. Like sanctions will be imposed. Definitely, definitely. It'll be very interesting to see what happens. Absolutely. All right, let's turn to Australia. We're going to go down under for a little bit. Uh, Facebook has banned Australian users from using this platform. Why? Like, what's the deal with Australia? Out of all the countries, Australia? Yeah, I know. Well, I guess, you know, it's really there's this proposed law that would kind of force tech giants to pay for their content. Um, and they're still trying to figure out what, how exactly it would work. But I mean, Facebook has established itself as like the key source for news in Australia, right? I mean, they have a such a significant influence on how the newsrooms in the country make uh, their decisions. Most, I mean, it's like the biggest source of news for most Australians, which is crazy. Uh, I, I think uh, a Reuters Institute report said that up to 40% of Australians use Facebook for news between 2018 and 2020, making it the most popular social media platform for news in the country. And so uh, we're seeing this push uh, by Australia to kind of crack down on, on the use of it just because of the outsized influence, right? Uh, the newsrooms in Australia are kind of being, uh, are playing second fiddle to Facebook. And so they're trying to kind of help uh, the, these news organizations kind of boost their revenue streams. Uh, and so uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of, of money Facebook's kind of throwing out there to lose, right? Just because Facebook generates a lot of money by, by its users and, and the referrals it makes. And so um, I, I'm not sure whether how you know long term this ban is going to be. It might just be symbolic, saying, "Hey, you know, you're about to make a lot of Australians very angry." Government, and so don't don't move forward with this proposed law. Uh, which, I mean, I, if I were in Australia, uh, in in Australia, uh, trying to use Facebook, I'd be pretty upset. I mean, I don't you know personally use Facebook that much, but I think that's just the demographics of of the platform now. Uh, but it's just interesting how much influence that a big tech giant could have on a country. And we'll see how it plays out. But this could be a great case study in the outsized influence of technology companies and Facebook in particular. Oh, yeah, for sure. It'll be very interesting to see. Uh, geez, it's just weird to think that it's having that issue with Australia, but not some of these other countries. <laughs> right. I mean, well, we're seeing like antitrust cases brought forth the whole issue of competition, both in Europe and in the United States. Uh, we've, we've seen you know, more uh, adversarial countries, um, autocratic countries kind of clamp down on Facebook where they're trying to use it for their own uh, uh, advantages. But I mean, there's a global reckoning with big tech and social media in particular, just because it is so powerful, right? We've seen governments fall because of social media sites. We've, we, we almost saw the US terror attacks be spawned yeah. by social media oh, yeah. sites and all of that. Right. And so there, there's so much power held within these companies and so, I mean, it's, this is, I mean, Australia is taking this step. It'll, it'll be interesting to see what the United States and other uh, European countries do, as well as, you know, countries in Asia and uh, just because those are the ones in which that have the most amount of users uh, and have right, more and more influence when it comes to this conversation. And so, uh, I mean, something's going to have to change, right? I mean, these countries are, are not putting up with it and they have all the power in their hands. It's just the, the lobbying efforts by these big technology companies can be very effective. Uh, right, they have they have all the money, and at the end of the day, they have all all these users want to use these platforms, and so there's that influence um, area as well. For sure, for sure, and it'll be interesting to see how like some of the standards that have been applied to U.S. Uh, political interests are applied elsewhere, abroad, not just in first world countries, but in global south and so on. Yep, exactly. So I mean, 
uh, I, I'm kind of concerned that, you know, we'll, we'll see whether or not it's, you know, we might see breakups of technology companies and then who knows what's going to happen from there. But um, I mean, this kind of fits into the larger conversation we've been having almost week over week about uh, the role of technology and how it's kind of coming into clash with all forms of governments, whether they're democratic, autocratic, right? I mean, they all use it in different ways. Uh, and so I don't know. I mean, right, there's a lot of uncertainty kind of coming into this. Uh, but as as we keep on having this conversation, Andre, all, all I see is that it's it's coming to a head. It's going to, you know, boil over and um, it's going to be quite unfortunate, likely for these companies, just because they're going to be regulated um, in, in very different ways, right? I mean, there's bipartisan efforts in the United States to take on regulation against these companies. And it's only a matter of time before it happens. Yeah, exactly. Jeez. I mean, I mean, some of these companies are more powerful than some countries in the world at this point. Yeah. I mean, if you look at right, even like their, their revenue, right? The revenues of some of these companies are bigger than the GDPs of some countries. And so, which is crazy, right? It's crazy to think about um, and certainly have more power than some of the smaller countries. Um, and yeah, so this is an important conversation, one we're going to you know, continue having. Um, and so if for all of, of those interested uh, in this topic, we've had conversations about this um, on, on big tech. We, we talked about a little bit with Ian Bremmer on the role of technology and big data um, and maybe the creation of a world data organization to kind of regulate uh, from a global scale, just because, you know, at the, at the end of the day, right, this is this could be a, a unilateral effort by countries internally, but when you're looking at particularly the EU, which has to take a multilateral approach for them to kind of put in, in into action, there's likely going to be um, a, a multilateral approach when you're looking across the world, just because there's really no effective way to do it. These are multinational companies that operate in every corner of the globe. And so I think the most effective way to do it would be to do it on a global scale, um, whether or not you have, you know, some UN convention or maybe create a new organization, who knows, uh, but it, it will only be effective with la- with long lasting, um, with long lasting, I guess, solutions to, to this problem if you do it in a multilateral global scale sort of way. Yeah. And we do, and for our audience, we do have an episode on this with uh, Dr. Jurijit Paul from a few weeks ago that looks at this issue of social media, big tech, populism, and then also just like social media and big tech and global politics. Uh, it's with Dr. Joy G. Paul, so please check that out. It's a, it's a great episode, but yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. That's uh, almost all the time we have for this week's What in the World. Certainly a lot going on. I suggest that uh, for all of you who want to learn more about what's happening in your world, check out our newsletter. We release it uh, every Tuesday. We kind of uh, are reformatting it so that you get more information about what's happening in the world with more uh, information sources so that you can kind of do your own reading at your leisure. Uh, but it's, it's really a, a great way for you to kind of read about what's happening from up and coming uh, young professionals in the foreign policy and national security space. And so we highly recommend that. Uh, we also have a great episode coming out Monday with um, Michael Barr, who is the dean of the University of Michigan's Ford School of Public Policy. We hit on a lot of great topics related to uh, the economy, the global economy, uh, how to kind of recover from COVID, um, how education plays such an important role in the economy, and how uh, multilateral economic organizations can, um, can help kind of reinvigorate uh, global cooperation. And so uh, it's, it's very well worth a listen, a little bit different than what we usually talk about. 
um, just because, you know, Andre and I are not uh, economics majors. And so a little bit out of all, all out of our um, area of expertise, uh, but it was a great conversation and a fun one. And especially for Andre, who went to the Ford School. And so I'm sure that was a treat for you. Quite the treat, quite the treat. But anyway, folks, uh, take a listen to that. We have some great episodes that we've just released in the last two weeks as well. Uh, Council on Foreign Relations President, Dr. Richard Haas, uh, former CIA's Special Operations Officer, Tracy Walder, and uh, this past week's episode as well with Zeke Miller, where you can sort of get an insight into how the media actually reports on the president. So check those out as well. Uh, We'll see you next week. Thank you. See you next week.